Beer, Cheese, and Murder contains explicit and graphic content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Beer, Cheese, and Murder, the first episode. I'm Erica, and joining me for this episode are... Bonnie. Terry. Tina. <laughs> Jill. <laughs> All right, so we have Terry and Dina and Jill and Bonnie, um, and we're waiting for Kayla, so we'll see when she gets here. Um, are you guys eating and drinking anything special today? Since it was the first episode today, I thought it was appropriate to have a New Glares Wisconsin Spotted Cow. Cool. Excellent. Excellent choice. I'm drinking Laudenbach's Orchard Country Cherry Sangria from Door County. Mm. I just have a Pepsi. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a water. <laughs> I have water as backup. I don't know how much I'm going to actually be drinking my beer, but um, I do have, so it is, uh, the case I'll be diving in today is a hometown case for me. So I found a local brewery. I am drinking a dark ale, let's make sure you guys can see that, um, called Private Eyes from Eagle Park Brewing, uh, specifically their Muskego, Wisconsin location. So it's new. Um, I've, yeah, so they actually have two different locations, but I think the Muskego location is new, but I do think that the, um, gentlemen that opened it are from Muskego, Wisconsin. Um, and then snack wise. So that's what I'm drinking. If I might interject, I have heard yeah. good things about the yeah. Eagle Park Brewery. They look, um, yeah, I stopped by there to pick up the beer in person. Got a couple of different options to sample, but they looked like they were pretty busy. I mean, it wasn't too crowded and they definitely had things spaced out well in person but they have like a restaurant or food options as well as the the brewery and it looked like they were definitely bringing them in so it looked like there was a lot of interest there um snack wise i got a couple of items here so it's beer cheese and murder so we got the beer covered so then i also have the rosemary and olive oil asiago by sartori it is delicious uh, and then i also have i stopped by the whoops bakery in southridge so they have i think they have a brookfield location and then they have a, a little kiosk in southridge mall um yeah, and so, I'm, what's bakery wolves whoops like whoops Oh, yeah. okay. Whoops, um, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, Whoops, I'm in a bakery again. <laughs> Oops, I just broke one. Um, but yeah, so I am going to toast today's episode, the start of this podcast, with a pink champagne macaroon. Um, I am particularly fond also of their honey lavender one. Um, I had tried to get some birthday cake macaroons, but they were, they didn't have any in stock, but I'm pretty sure these will be good. 
why were you trying to get the birthday cake macaroons? Could well, it be that your birthday is coming? Funny you should ask. No, um, so I figure it's it's the birth of the podcast for one. Oh. Uh, and then two is that um I am hoping to get the first episode launched on my birthday. And March is my family's birthday month, more or less. We just celebrated. Uh, my oldest son and my husband's birthday. We have uh, just over a week for the next kiddo's birthday. And then mine is um, at the end of the month. So we basically can put up birthday decorations all month long here <laughs> in our household. So <laughs> busy birthday month. <laughs> yeah. So, and it'll be easy to remember if I do get this launched on my birthday uh, when the anniversary is. So there you go. Um, but yeah, so that's what I got. And I think we covered everybody in terms of food and beverage. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, we do have a lot to cover. So I'm going to get us kicked off. Um, since this is ultimately a podcast from Wisconsin about Wisconsin, I'm going to start with some Wisco facts. So um, I did forget at the start of this to mention that beer, cheese, and murder, if the murder didn't give it away, um, that this is a true crime podcast about Wisconsin from Wisconsin. So Wisco facts, here we go. Again, to get back to what this podcast is called, Beer, Cheese, and Murder, let's talk about some facts associated with those items. According to an article from 2019, Wisconsin craft brewers produce five gallons of beer per each resident of the state, 21 years and older. So to kind of put that into a little bit of a different perspective, that's 333 million 22,005 12-ounce bottles of beer a year. Uh, even with that, volume, Wisconsin is ranked 10th in the nation for craft beer production. And Pennsylvania is actually higher, but well, we're going to ignore that fact. Okay, so <laughs> craft brewer, in case anybody isn't aware, is a small independent brewer. So that's just the craft brewers. That doesn't include even like the big producers like Miller or Lining Kugels or, you know, that type of brewer. Um, Wisconsin has about 205 breweries today. Our beer history goes back to 1840. So if you'll remember, Wisconsin became a state in 1848. So before Wisconsin was even officially a state, we had a brewing history. Milwaukee was a hot spot for breweries, has a vast, due to a vast German immigrant population, accessibility to the Milwaukee River, and then also uh, caves for storing barrels of beer were also uh, available or in the area. We already had 200 breweries by the 1860s. Some of the well-known brewers include Miller Brewing, Pabst Brewing, Valentine Blatt's Brewing, Joseph Schlitz Brewing, and then the oldest still existing brewery is the Minhas Brewing in Monroe, and it, so it's still operating today. How is that spelled? Minhas? Minhas. 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 The first modern winery is in Algoma and that was established in 1967. Um, and so as we're talking about spirits, let's talk about brandy for a minute. So according to Corbell, Wisconsinites consume more than half the world's brandy, 
based on their sales. So of 275,000 cases sold in 2019, 150,000 cases went to Wisconsin. I knew that. Wow. <laughs> Raise your hand if you have brandy in your house right now. Oh, yeah. Everybody yes, on this from Wisconsin and the one from <laughs> Illinois, everybody does. We probably have multiple bottles of brandy in different kinds. For Belle and e and J, I usually have. Yeah. So can I just say, I feel the need to share this story that when I was young, like I'm talking maybe eight, nine, maybe 10 years old, I was getting a cold and we were up north at the cabins and dad, oh, we have some of this. This will clear you out and gave me a shot of blackberry brandy. Yeah, that's, that's a Wisconsin yeah. thing. Blackberry brandy yeah. for a cold. Is it it knocks it right out though. Is it for teething? You put branding on their gums when they're teething? Yeah, you should have seen Erica's yeah. face when Bonnie and I told her to do that for Donovan. <laughs> Yeah, nope, that's actually in my notes that that, yeah, that's in my notes to mention that actually. It knocks it right out though, Jill. Kayla, how to make a hot toddy last year. Yep. Oh my gosh, yes, hot oh, toddies, yeah. I have that in there as well. So for my housewarming, she gave me brandy, hot toddy ingredients, and then my dad had given me old fashioned, his old fashioned mix. So I was officially Wisconsin ready at that point. Yes. Yeah, so I do have it in my notes about the hot toddies, which is perfect when under the weather. And I also had the note in there about rubbing brandy on babies' gums when they're teething. But just to make sure, too, that we are not promoting that. If anybody's listening to this, we are not promoting that. It helps, but we're not promoting it. <laughs> it works. We're not never tried that. Yeah. Not? I don't know. Okay. So to get back on track or round out the uh, brandy facts here. So my own aunt prefers brandy and Coke, earning the nickname Auntie Corbell. So that is what we lovingly refer oh. to my aunt. Yeah. <laughs> Love <it>. name. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, many Wisconsinites prefer or love brandy old fashions, which I'm sure you guys are well aware. For sure. Uh, but I would not recommend ordering them in San Diego. And if or Kayla, anywhere outside of Wisconsin, no. really, yeah, they don't yeah, taste the right. same. If uh, no. Kayla were on, she would recount a story or we would be able to share a story from when uh, Sean and I went to go visit her when she was living down in San Diego. There she is. Oh, there she is. Yeah. And uh, we went out to dinner and he ordered a brandy old fashioned and they didn't know what it was. And they asked him how you make it, which uh, I guess the Internet wasn't. Uh, right then he should have changed his mind yeah he <laughs> yes. could have. right there right there <laughs> yeah. so he ordered okay. it he told them okay. like how to make it and they're like oh okay yeah we can do that so they bring him out a drink he tastes it and he's like yeah no that's that's not good and he wasn't gonna say anything he was just gonna put it aside and not drink it because he's not a confrontational sort of guy but Kayla was very polite and she got the waiter's attention was like, yeah, like this just isn't right. Can you please try again? And then the second time they brought it out, it was in a martini glass. Nice. <laughs> well, well, at least they tried. Now old fashions have been popular across the country. What? But back, but back then, yeah. I mean, it's old fashioned is now like an item, a specialty drink on a menu. Well, mm -hmm. even if it's not, you can look it up on Google and it'll tell you how to make it. 
it still doesn't taste the same if you're not in yeah, Wisconsin, particularly upper club in Wisconsin is the best. Yeah. One way, it's like, do you want brandy, whiskey, bourbon? Do you want oh, yeah, sure, sure. Do you want fruit? Do you want olives? It's very complicated, but in Wisconsin, you just get the point. Yeah. So I think Sean learned his lesson after that. <laughs> yeah, he just gets a whiskey a- and coke now because he can't mess that up. Yeah, there was a plant at the table that Oh my gosh, yeah. All right, so that is what we have for alcohol and beer-related facts. So I'm going to start in on some dairy-related facts. So Wisconsin um, is home. Erica, before yeah. we scooch on, sorry. I would like to share that um, watching you guys all sip and drink, I... I don't have a Wisconsin beer, but I went with the German history that you touched mm, on. So yeah, I, love her. I love how Dina said that. I was just going to say, I love how Dina says it. She knew, she knew what I was going to say. Delicious Schufferhofer grapefruit beer. Also, Dina's cat is just like front and center back there. He's like a model in your she, windowsill. She, she's like yes. a model in your windowsill. Yes, she is. So I just wanted to go back to that. I was oh, yeah, yeah. a little thirsty. So before you moved on from beer and um, spirit. Yes. Thanks for drinking alcohol with us, Jill. <laughs> okay, this is some. Um, my arm. This is some me time, right? Um, so dairy facts. Wisconsin is home to 64,793 farms on 14.3 million acres. There are 6,932 licensed dairy herds in Wisconsin, which is more than any other state. And that equates to 1,263,000 dairy cows the dairy industry provides about $45.6 billion to Wisconsin's economy every year. Um, now, this is something that, as a mother, kind of makes me hurt a little bit. Total monthly milk production per cow is 2,070 pounds or 241 gallons. Um, so daily cow production or daily per cow production is 67 pounds or seven. 7.8 gallons of milk. So per day? a single cow, yes, per day is producing 7.8 gallons of milk. That is a lot. Yeah, mama can't produce that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, there are nearly 1,200 licensed cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and they produce over 600 types, styles, and varieties of cheese, which is nearly the nearly double the number of any other state. Mozzarella and cheddar together account for over 54% of the cheese made in Wisconsin in 2019. And Wisconsin makes 26% of the nation's cheese having produced 3.36 billion pounds in 2019. Um, Wisconsin also exported $3.3 billion worth of agricultural products in 2019 to 151 countries, and they currently rank 13th among the states for the value of agricultural exports. 
and the agricultural industry provides about four, 435,700 jobs, which is 11.8% of the state's employment. So it is very important to our state and um, the health of our economy. So that kind of rounds out the, we talked about beer, we talked about cheese. Now let's talk some crime stats before we get into the actual case we're going to cover. So a 2020 article states that Wisconsin has about three violent incidents per 1,000, um, which is less than the national rate of 3.7. So of all crime-related incidents, uh, all for, okay, so for 1,000 crime-related incidents, about three of them are violent in nature. There, historically, so there have been at least 12 mass shootings in Wisconsin since 2004. Um, the most recent was on February 26, 2020 at the Molson Coors campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which generated national news. And it also impacted many nearby businesses, including my mom's. Um, because when the shooter was at large, there were buildings that were on lockdown while they figured out, you know, got a handle on the situation and figured out what was going on. So she was actually in lockdown for a period of time um, when that occurred. And not at Miller. Right. No. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. A totally different Just business. Yeah. Closer mm -hmm. proximity. Yep. Wisconsin has also produced or been impacted by some of the most notorious serial killers. Ed Gein was arrested in 1957. Um, he actually inspired the movie Psycho and the character of Norman Bates. And he is also a um, part of the inspiration for the character of Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre was yeah. widely based off of him as well. Yeah, so he was... Um, a character to say the least uh <laughs> yeah a character of other people's parts yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh. jeffrey dahmer also known as the milwaukee cannibal or the milwaukee monster probably i mean i'd say between him and ed gein he's probably one of the most notorious serial killers Joseph Paul Franklin, he was a racist killer responsible for 18 slayings. He actually died by lethal injection in Missouri. So he did kill in Wisconsin, but also elsewhere as well. David Spanbauer was a serial rapist and murderer. Walter Ellis was convicted in 2011 for the murders of seven women between 1986 and 2007, thanks to the Milwaukee Police Department's cold case unit. Um, and he is actually a serial killer that from what I've been told, um, used to work at the company where I currently work. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> uh, Edward, Edward Edwards was found guilty of the sweetheart murders in 1980. So there was a uh, couple that were murdered in Wisconsin in 1980, and they were actually dubbed the sweetheart murders. So if you look that up, um, so he's the one that was convicted of that. Um, and if that's not enough, Wisconsin was also popular among Chicago-based gangsters, including Al Capone and John Dillinger. And there's actually, um, if you go on the On Travel Wisconsin website, you can actually register to take a gangster tour um, within Wisconsin. So there's, there's a lot of like haunted and kind of murder history associated with the gangsters uh, and their association here in Wisconsin. 
I'm gonna do it. The yeah, game for sure. Is there one like in in Milwaukee area? I would assume. There has to, I would think so. There have to be, but I know that I think the the they were they like the woodsy areas because of the seclusion. More remote. Yeah. yeah. It was their summer homes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are just a few facts about Wisconsin. Um, so while we will be diving into some pretty awful things that occurred in Wisconsin, it's also part of our mission to show how awesome our state is. Um, so in addition to the case covered each episode, I will try to share a new Wisco fact because there's a lot more than what I already covered. Um, and I also want to make sure to end on a Wisco high note. So we got the Wisco facts, that's a check. And so now we're gonna dive into our first true crime case for Wisconsin. And as I had stated um, previously, that this is gonna be a hometown case for me. All right, so for this case, we're actually going back a ways. So we're going back to 1979. Um, some information to kind of get us in the frame of mind of where we were at in 1979. The, uh, so in terms of cost of living, average salary was $17,500. A first class stamp would give you 15 cents. Yeah, and a gallon of gas cost 86 cents in 1979. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Because in 1990, it cost 86 cents. So that's yeah, crazy. The, the cost of gas is really not a good gauge of time. <laughs> yeah, that's high for the 70s. The yeah. How does Dina remember the price of gas in 1990? <laughs> <laughs> I to, oh, it was actually 1992 because I went to Daytona Beach for spring uh, break. And we got gas. It was between oh, it was between eighty six and ninety two cents between Wisconsin and Florida. The yeah. the highest was ninety two and the lowest was eighty six. Yeah, you probably wow. do see a lot more difference these days than back then. Right, right. Um, some of the major events in nineteen seventy nine. Um, top of my list, the Happy Meal was introduced at McDonald's in nineteen seventy nine. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the U.S. Voyager 1 space probe reveals Jupiter's rings. And then also Michael Jackson released his first breakthrough album, Off the Wall, in 19- I have that album still at my mom's house. The original. Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> On vinyl or A-track, Tina? On vinyl. The original <laughs> vinyl. <joking. laughs> I know. I didn't have any eight tracks. My I parents know. had eight tracks. You're older <laughs> than me, remember? I know. But <laughs> how many people a, the letter A track, or is it H the number H track? The a number eight, eight track. Okay. Okay. So see, a lot of people don't even know what the eight track was. Learned it's eight track. When your mom and dad moved to their to the other house that you grew up in, we were cleaning out all of the videos and everything, and Joy. Asked what kind of videotape it was. <laughs> yeah, right. it was an eight track. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now that we've aged ourselves all the way around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some popular movies released in 1979 included Alien, Apocalypse Now, Mad Max, Hair, and Escape from Alcatraz. And then some of the popular music of the time, uh, popular still today, we got YMCA by the Village People. 
got that album too. <laughs> got the Bee Gees. We got all sorts of those. Uh, Billy Joel's My Life. Toto, Hold the Line. Shares, Take Me Home. Queens, Don't Stop Me Now. Earth, Wind, and Fire, September. And then as we start getting to our case, ACDC's Highway to Hell. Wow. Didn't realize it was that old. Yeah. So now that we kind of have an idea of where we were at in 1979, let's start with our case. So Monday, May 7th, 1979, John Barrell called his mother-in-law Estelle to ask if his wife Donna May was over by her parents' house. So this is in Muskego, Wisconsin, uh, better known as the suburb of Milwaukee for most people. So his mother-in-law, Estelle, was surprised at the question. So no, Donna wasn't there. Why would she be? Um, according to John, he and Donna had had an argument the night before. He heard what sounded like her leaving after he had gone to bed, and he woke up to find her gone. He told his mother-in-law that she took off without saying where she was going, and now he didn't know where she was. So hence the phone call to Estelle to ask if she was there. Naturally, Estelle was concerned, especially since it was now Monday afternoon, early evening, and according to John, he had last seen Donna around 9 p.m. the night before. What's more, after working to get more information from John on what exactly was going on and what had happened, he told Estelle that Donna's car was in the garage, so if she had left, how had she left? If she had left on her own volition, how did she leave without a vehicle? Uh, additionally, all of Donna's things, clothes, etc., were also still in the home. So if she had left, she didn't take anything with her. Um, so after hearing this, sure that something wasn't right, Estelle insisted on going over to John and Donna May's house, despite John's protests that it wasn't necessary. But Estelle wanted to be there to help find her daughter, as well as to care for her two young granddaughters, who were seven and four at the time. Um, and for whom Donna was the main caregiver. So Donna was a stay-at-home mom. John worked. He didn't really have much to do with raising the girls. So naturally, without Donna there, someone needed to take care of them. After speaking with John on the phone, Estelle and Donna's father, Ernest, went to their daughter and son-in-law's house in Muskego, Wisconsin, to help. John's attitude, like right away over his wife's disappearance, seemed to be more of irritation than concerned. He just seemed to be like, she left. What am I supposed to do about it? Estelle wanted to know what John had done aside from calling her and her husband to figure out where she was. She asked him if he called the police. Now, she asked him this and he said yes. What else had he done? He said, what else am I supposed to do? aside from calling the police to figure out where she was. Um, she said, well, did you call any area motels? Did you call any friends and family other than obviously her parents to figure out if she was over by them? And he said, no. So she offered to start calling around to see if Donna was checked into a motel somewhere or was maybe possibly over by a different friend or family. He, she just wanted to start calling around and figure out, okay, where could she possibly be? Start checking things off the list. And John said, no, he was like, no, I will do it. I'll take care of it. 
I'll make the calls. And he said that he would do the calling around, but he knew for a fact that it would be a waste of time to call motels because she wasn't at one. Mm, how at, does he know that for a yeah, fact? Yeah. And that's what she asked. She obviously she like, only stayed in hotels. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> First off, this guy clearly did not help with the laundry or the groceries or anything. She was pissed off. She left for a reason. Well, <laughs> we're talking about a murder here. So I'm kind of going to Are we? Right now we're talking about a missing person. So, all right. It sounds like a clueless husband who does not pay enough attention. That in what? and of itself is not a crime. Okay, so. <laughs> Although it should be. <laughs> is this hitting home for you? Jill, is this hitting home from you? Like, what's going on? <laughs> okay. So we all just drank when I said Okay. That. So he said that he knew for a fact that it'd be a waste of time to call the motels because he knew she wasn't at one. Obviously, his mother-in-law thought, like, how could you possibly know for a fact that she's not at one? That seems super suspicious how how could you know that and he said i just know okay additionally john repeated multiple times that he would not tell estelle what he and donna had argued about prior to her departure even though estelle hadn't actually asked him about it she didn't ask or pry for any details but he made a point to say we had an argument and i'm not going to tell you about it like i'm not going to tell you what we argued about blah 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 and it was very defensive um, so over the next few days, weeks, and ultimately months, Donna's parents, as well as her older sister, Joanne, helped John to take care of Donna's daughters and to search for answers as to Donna's disappearance. And the thing here to note, too, is that they were pretty much the only ones that were actually searching for answers and trying to figure out what happened to her. John basically went on with his life and acted as if She's never coming home. I'm just going to move on to the next. That's sketchy. Every Dateline yeah. episode I've ever watched when the husband just moves on with his life, he yeah. did it. He did yeah. it. Yeah. Every well, episode, he did it. Yeah. So, I mean, her or family. He had the side chick. He may not have done it, but the side chick may have done it. Come on, Kayla. <laughs> let me tell the story. <laughs> All right. So. She already knows who did it, by the way. <laughs> What'd you say? Judgy at this point. Erica already knows who did it, Kayla. She's gonna tell us. <laughs> so um they're they're trying to figure out what happened. They're trying to pick up the pieces to take care of these girls. They're very young, so trying to like make things, you know, as easy for them as possible, as normal for them, but also they're they themselves are trying to figure out what's going on. They want to know what happened to their daughter, what happened to their sister. They're desperate for answers. She's just gone and nobody knows where she is and her husband is basically just not talking about her moving on with his life going to his bowling club like two days later like as if no big deal um so as kind of Kayla mentioned and as I mentioned before Donna was the main caregiver for these girls John didn't really have a whole lot to do with taking care of them so um, Donna's sister Joanne actually moved into the home with them temporarily to take care of the girls and to also help out with the household. So 
we've all watched a lot of Dateline, heard a lot of these stories. So I'm sure all our suspicions are already peaked. And it was during that time that the family's suspicions, as well as that of police investigators, also increased in regards to John and his relationship with Donna May. Right. So now I'm going to kind of go into some of like the reasons why or some of the things that peaked suspicions. So first of all, the police were officially brought into the case with John's report of his wife missing on Wednesday, May 9th, despite the fact, as you might recall, I told you earlier, that he told his mother-in-law that he had contacted the police on Monday, May 7th. So when she asked if he had called the police, he said yes. But in mm -hmm. fact, he didn't actually report her missing until that Wednesday, May 9th. So when the investigation officially kicked off, Donna had already been missing three days and she was last seen by her husband at her home on the night of Sunday, May 6th. So that is like the first point of suspicion there. Secondly, he had an inconsistent story over time. So that always is another thing that investigators look for is whether or not the story changes. When he talked to his mother-in-law initially, to find out if Donna May was at her parents' house, he described some of the events of the day that let, like, leading up to the point when he said that she had left the home. He had said during the day that Donna had gone to Stein's to purchase rose bushes to plant in their yard because they were doing some yard work. Um, and then later at night, the family had gone to McDonald's for dinner um, at the request of their daughters that the girls wanted to go there. Um, he said that they had ordered, but that after they had ordered, Donna began to not feel well. And so they, she didn't actually end up eating dinner. And then after that, they went home and, you know, they don't really outright say it, but maybe because she wasn't feeling well. Um, but he said that when they got home, Donna basically started an argument with him kind of starting in on him, accusing him of different things. And that's kind of blew up into this bigger argument. But he had said to his mother-in-law, he didn't feel it was enough to make her leave, but it's kind of implied that she was mad and she likely left because she needed to cool off is essentially where he, what he was trying to like get to. So according to John and what he told his mother-in-law, he went to bed around nine and he could hear what sounded like her leaving driving out of the garage with the car and he just went to sleep. So he heard her leaving, but he was just like, whatever, I'm going to bed. Oh, but the car was there. Yes, it was. <laughs> so a few hours later, he woke up or he told his mother-in-law that he woke up to what sounded like her returning to the house. He said she was making a racket, moving all over the house, you know, slamming doors and in the basement. Um, and he was in know. bed this whole time? Yes. That's what he oh, said. John. So, oh, John. <laughs> yeah. So You're he said, John, he at this up. point, you don't change yeah. Vicky's diapers. You don't even check if your <laughs> wife is leaving you. Come Be careful, on. Kayla, about the diapers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she changed one. She changed one in the summer. <laughs> John has a, a, a list of things behind his name at this point. It's a John right now. Yes. Well, I know of another John who never changed diapers. So let's be <laughs> careful here. <laughs> so, um, so he'd gone to bed. He said that he woke up to her, what sounded like her entering the house, moving all over the place, slamming doors, making a huge racket. 
Um, and then it sounded like she left again. He said that he heard her car leaving the garage and it sounded like a car turning around in the gra gravel drive across the street. So again, to what Kayla was trying to say there is in his story to his mother-in-law, he was in bed the entire time. He didn't get out of bed. He said, well, why should I? She was mad at me. So basically he's, you know, poor him, his wife's mad why should he care if she's leaving or making this huge racket? He's just like, I'm going to bed. But he woke up in the morning and her car was there, but she wasn't. And I have to call bullshit on the mom making the racket in the middle of the night because if someone, if your kids are sleeping soundly, yeah, you're not going to wake them up in the middle of the night, especially with a husband that yeah she may stomp around and wake him up but she's not going to stomp around and slam doors right. and wake up her kids in the middle exactly. of the night right right yeah and her mother called him on this she she said she challenged him she's she found she's like are you telling me that she was making this racket and you didn't even get out of bed to check out and figure out what was going on and that was the first time his story changed because he must have realized, okay, yeah, that doesn't sound quite right. So he yeah, said, sounds like I'm a loser husband, which I am. Right. So he said that he did get up, but it was too dark and he didn't see anything. And then he went back to bed. Did lamps not exist yet in 1979? I don't recall. He got yeah, he got out of bed after her. He heard the car leaving, couldn't see anything outside, so he went back to bed. I'm just gonna go back to bed. I don't need to report anything about this mysterious thing. My wife's missing. I don't know where my she wasn't missing at that point, Kayla. She wasn't missing at that point. She just drove away. Yeah. So that was that was the first change in his story, and that was just in his story to his mother-in-law. So then during the time that his sister-in-law, Donna's older sister, Joanne, was living with them, she obviously was suspicious of him. And she, I'm telling you, she had some gumption because she, even though, uh, you know, she suspected him of doing something to hurt her sister, she had no problem standing up to him after the kids were in bed, of course. And even telling him to his face that she thought he had killed her sister and but during the time you know he told her the story of what had happened that night because she kept bringing it up so he said like this is what happened but when he talked to her and told her what happened what he said was that the night that Donna Mae left he was still awake when Donna Mae left the house around 9 p.m not in bed and that he actually stayed up until 11 p.m. watching the news before then going to bed. Minor change from what he told his mother-in-law, but it's still a change. And those types of inconsistencies, as small as they are, are certainly suspicious. Truth doesn't change. Right. Yes. There's also what he told the police. So I believe that the story that he told to the police is very much in line with what he told his mother-in-law. However, um, as Joanne became more suspicious of him, she herself went directly to the police because she wasn't satisfied with John being the one going to them. So she went to the police herself and expressed her suspicions around Donna's disappearance, specifically her 
suspicions of her brother-in-law and they actually changed the classification of her disappearance to involuntary missing so they agreed like there's something suspicious here she would not have left of her own accord and they conducted additional questioning of john and i think when it became clear to him that they weren't just taking the story that she left on her own and that they believe that something had happened he provided additional details um, around the argument with her that would you know make it seem more so that she would have left voluntarily so he is trying to add in information that would support his story that she left on her own versus her leaving um against her wishes a stay-at-home mom that just leaves her kids right. with a right. man that doesn't oh, do yeah. any of the caretaking and the husband it's totally like, normal it's a little weird but like eh, i'm not really gonna yeah. report it and no, he yeah. actually said that she'd done this before that this is not a new thing that they get an argument she'd leave to cool off and then come back but during the investigation, the police found no evidence that this was a pattern in their marriage. And Donna never left. So if she did leave to go on a trip or do something like that, she never left without the kids. She always took the kids with her. The mother always takes the kids. Right. right. They always would. Yeah. So yeah. especially in this case, because, you know, he didn't, they're, they're young. He doesn't take care of them. So why would she leave them behind and right. leave without them? Additional suspicions, obviously, if you hadn't guessed, there are problems in the marriage. So John, yeah. So John made a few admissions to police during the investigation that showed that all was not well in the marriage. I know you're so surprised. Um, John admitted that he had a girlfriend and that he saw a couple times a week. Um, And at the point of Donna's disappearance, this relationship had been going on for over two years already. Fucking John. Donna's best friend, Betty, actually lived in Michigan. Um, And at this time, you know, obviously the communication channels weren't as great. So, but they kept in pretty frequent letter communication back and forth to each other. And uh, Betty has since passed away, but she kept like meticulous records of the communication. And in her detailed record keeping, she revealed that Donna suspected and even knew of John's affair, having sought advice from Betty on what to do about it. So if they had gotten into an argument that night and she was accusing him of different things, it's possible that one of the things that she could have brought up was the fact that he was having an affair or something like that. So that certainly could add to a um, an argument there for sure. John also admitted to the occurrence of physical abuse in the relationship. He specifically said that he had hit and pinched her at least six times before her disappearance. Hit and pinched her or punched her? I think said pinched. I thought, he said, I thought she said, oh, I, pinched. I'm pretty sure per my notes that it said pinched. I don't That's know why pinched. so random. Like really? It was also specific in terms of the number because it said six specifically. I'm not, but it's an old case. How do you remember how many times you pinched pinched somebody? somebody. (laughs) (laughs) I don't pinch anyone. This particular admission was prompted by Joanne's discovery and subsequent notification to the police of blood spots in the garage. Oh boy. 
and blood typing did confirm at the time that the blood was a match to Donna May, and she had a different blood type than her husband, so they knew it wasn't his. However, DNA testing wasn't a thing at the time, and matching the blood type didn't come nearly close enough to proving that the blood was Donna's, and wasn't like a huge amount of blood to suggest that someone for sure um, hadn't survived. Uh, but analysis of the blood in the garage did suggest that the blood had been cast off from an impact. But again, they couldn't prove definitively that the blood was Donna's. And John insisted that he didn't know what happened to her and that she left on her own. Additionally, he admitted to the previous physical abuse to add doubt that the blood was there from this time and not from before. So who's to say it couldn't have happened from a previous altercation? All right, so we've been talking about reasons why they're suspicious of John, especially his relationship with Donna May. So let's take a minute to kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about who Donna May and John are. So at the time of her disappearance, Donna May was 38 years old. She was a stay-at-home wife and mother. She'd been married to John, uh, who was 39 at the time, for eight years. And they had two daughters. Jody, age seven, and she had just celebrated her birthday at the end of April, and a daughter, Jackie, who was four. By all accounts, she was a devoted mother, and even John um, said that she lived for her daughters and felt that there's no way um, that if she could, she would be in touch with them. John was Donna's second husband, so she'd been married once before. She met her first husband while she was working at Allen Bradley. That first marriage was not successful. It ended up that her first husband was abusive and didn't want to have children. So they ended up getting divorced. After the divorce, she basically started over. She picked herself up, picked up the pieces. She supported herself. She had her own apartment. She bought her own car. She was an independent woman. Go girl. Go Donna. Yeah. Yes, she was a strong, independent woman, picking herself up after a failed marriage to a abusive man. Yeah. John Barrel was a six foot four, 250 pound man, big guy, nicknamed Big John. He was definitely a lot, you know, from a physical standpoint, he was much larger than Donna. Donna was, I think, about five foot six. And before their marriage was probably around 125 pounds, I think the um, description of her was. So she was definitely, a, you know, much lighter than he was. He was raised himself in an abusive household. His father was abusive towards his mother. He had very little respect for his mom and called her dumb. So this is a learned behavior for him. Like he did what he was mm -hmm. taught by seeing it firsthand. He also was married once before Donna May. So this again was a second marriage for him. So his first marriage um, produced two children. He had a son and a daughter. During the marriage, John became abusive with his wife. He was both emotionally and physically abusive. Um, he kept her on a strict budget had very tight control over her. In terms of the physical abuse, eventually there was an incident that was so bad where she feared for her life um, that she took the kids and she left him. And so they got divorced. And despite being court ordered to pay a child support, John refused. 
and he took measures to keep himself from being on the hook for paying for his kids. Eventually, he actually signed papers uh, that allowed his ex-wife's second husband to adopt his children. So he gave up his parental rights. So I don't know how much of John's history that Donna May knew, um, but they met at a birthday party in 1969 um, and they eloped the following year. And so they eloped because Donna's mom was against them getting married. She, and how many months were they together? Sorry. It was like about a year after they uh, met oh. that they got married. She, I don't know how much of his past that she was aware of, but she knew enough to know that he had kids and that he wasn't paying child support because that was her mom's basic objection to them getting married. She didn't like how he treated his first family. She didn't like that he wasn't responsible for taking care of his children. Um, she, so she didn't want her daughter marrying this man. And as a result of that, Donna was like, well, I'm doing it anyway. And they eloped. Her best friend, Betty, also cautioned her against marrying him, but not necessarily him specifically so much as that she just didn't have a lot of experience with men. Um, so she felt like, you know, maybe you should date a little bit. Yeah, maybe she should jump there, like, Don't just settle down with like the first guy that you see. Um, so your Wisconsin oats. Yeah. <laughs> but Donna just... Um, Date about 13 more guys on Bumble. I don't know. <laughs> See what's out there. In 1979. Yeah. yeah. Didn't exist. Okay. Or actually 1969 <laughs> at that point. Yeah. But Donna, she said she just wasn't interested in dating. She wanted to be a mom. And I think at that point too, especially having been married and having a failed marriage. I mean, at the time that she had her first daughter, she was already you know, in her thirties. So at that time, she probably felt like time was running out. She wanted to settle down, wanted to get married, wanted to start a family. And to kind of go back to John's attitude towards his first children and responsibilities, their first home was actually purchased solely in Donna's name so that they couldn't come after him for child support. Well, hopefully she got the house. Well, if she well that was their first home. So the first home was in her name, but they did eventually move um, to, a, you know, move to a bigger house. And that was actually the home that she disappeared from in Muskego. Um, she worked as far into her first pregnancy as she could, um, but eventually she left her job to become a stay at home wife and mom. So, you know, before she met him, she was a very independent woman, as we talked about before with working and having her own place and, you know, having her own car. Um, but then she met him, they got married, they started a family, she left her job to become a stay-at-home wife and mom. Um, staying at home meant that she was dependent upon him for the money needed to pay the bills and purchase necessities like groceries. He had her on an allowance. He kept her on a very strict budget, just like he did with his first wife. After the bills were paid, there wasn't much, if any, money left over for extras for her. Not for him, but her, for her. He could do what he wanted. Uh, there were times where her family observed during their visits that the cabinets were pretty bare, let alone having any money for any kind of extracurricular activities. Donna was not involved in any groups or activities outside of the home. She didn't have any close friends nearby. Her best friend Betty was in Michigan, um, and John's tight control caused her to be more and more isolated. Oh, that's so sad. She had no one. Yeah. 
And she didn't confide in her family either. She didn't, the only person she confided in, in terms of what was really going on in the marriage was her friend, Betty, who was in Michigan. She didn't tell her parents. She didn't tell her sister. Because well, she, she knew they already them, objected. She knew they didn't like them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know Dina and Jill and I had a magical Cancun trip where I elicited a lot of information with them about personal stuff. And <laughs> you share a lot of shit with your family. And if you don't. Yeah. That but... situation didn't end in murder, though. Just <laughs> yeah. for the record. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully. No, but you share things with your family and your family kind of sees things coming. So yeah. there were yeah. warning signs. Well, there's, signs. you wear rose colored glasses in a relationship yes, and usually, sure. you know, you got to do the enough time. There has to be enough of a trial period where the rose colored glasses come off and you still want to be with that person. Um, as far as I'm concerned, but sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. And I think if you feel that you've, I mean, there's more emotional abuse going on in that relationship that I'm sure it was more than just the fact that her parents had, um, you know, objected to it. And that's why she didn't want to say anything to him. She probably didn't feel like she could say anything to them, but there's a certain amount of safety in writing it in the letter. Um, to a friend who's, you know, a ways away. Right. It's, you know, there's a lot of dynamics there, but um, they, they wrote frequently. Uh, I think it was noted that she and Betty would have, you know, 30 or so letters a year. So they wrote back and forth almost constantly. Wow. And she, so they kept in very close touch. A month at least minimum. Yeah. Yeah. And they would visit each other back and forth. So Donna appeared to have been very introverted. She did attempt to reach out to be involved with other mothers in the area at various times. But when the other moms realized that there were problems in the home, they backed away. So nobody really wanted to deal with the fact that there were issues in the home. It was, like, it was taboo. You just didn't talk about it then and you didn't want associated with it. So it just isolated her more. You know, when she did try to reach out, people were just not open to it. That's the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. People didn't talk about stuff the way that they do now. Yeah. According to Betty by 1974, which is about four years into their marriage, John didn't even bother buying her cards, let alone gifts. John not only treated his wife cruelly, but also her dog. So she had gotten a white poodle after her first marriage had ended before she met John. And I don't think she realized how much he disliked animals when she went into the marriage, but it became clear, you know, I don't think she left the dog alone with him for fear of what he might do to the dog. Um, so when she would go on trips, she took the kids and the dog with her. The dog ended up having to be put down at 10 years old and Donna Mae um, couldn't even mourn the loss of her dog for fear of her husband's reaction if he found her crying over a dead dog. Oh, he got to go. He got to yeah. go. Yeah. He got to go. So after the death of her dog, she had no intention of bringing any more pets into the household. Um, but the daughters eventually convinced her to get a couple of goldfish. I mean, you can travel with a dog. You can't really travel with fish. And when the, Donna and the girl in a baggie, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. John might go try and pinch the fish. Oh my god! 
Oh, so when Donna and the girls were on a trip down south, John actually flushed them down the toilet. Oh, geez. But then they went to find Nemo. Yeah, he was was not, not a nice guy. It was during a time when her friend Betty came to visit that Donna told Betty about John beating her and knocking her down the stairs. So she opened up more during a visit. And this was in like, I believe the summer of 1977. So it was about a year and a half before Donna actually disappeared. So learning more detail about the actual abuse in the relationship, Betty offered her $600 or sorry, $500 to get away and out of the marriage, but Donna refused. At that point, she had been beaten down, not only physically, but emotionally, and didn't have the confidence that she would ever be able to pay back the money, and she had too much pride to take it. Um, And it was during this visit that she actually told Betty she thought John was trying to kill her. Mm. Okay. A year and a half prior. This is the 70s, and women are afraid, but like, if it ever comes to this, Please tell me. Well, here's the thing. This isn't just the 70s, Kayla. It's not just the 70s. This kind of thing happens happens now. Um, So she told Betty that she had told her mom that if anything happened to her, she wanted her, she wanted her mom to raise her daughters. And I think her mom, again, she hadn't confided into her. So or confided to her about what was going on. So her mom's just like, What are you talking about? Like, everything's gonna be fine. Like, yeah, is this just I don't a worry about like don't scare me. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I mean, through the course of the marriage, John made Donna feel worthless. So you had this strong, independent woman who was picking herself up herself up from a broken marriage. Um, and she went right back into an abusive marriage that basically broke her down. And now she has two daughters that she has to provide for. And so I think it makes it that much harder to try to get out of it you know what I mean um especially when she depends on him financially yeah Yeah. Yeah. and I get it people depend on other people whether it's financially or just as like a support system for kids and whatnot but that's really tough so as their marriage deteriorated uh to kind of make matters worse um Donna May began to cope through compulsive eating so I'm sure that had an impact on her self-esteem even more Um, Not to mention eliciting more opportunity for John to provide verbal abuse Um, and John drank more. So you know how abusive men are when they drink. So evidence, ultimately, evidence gathered by the police investigation after Donna's disappearance would ultimately show that John was abusive in a number of his relationships, both before and after his marriage to Donna. Now we kind of talked about John and Donna and who they were and how their marriage was. So let's get back to some of the points of suspicion. So we talked about um, changing stories. We talked about the delay in reporting to the police. And we also left off with talking about blood being found in the garage that was confirmed to be Donna May's blood type, though it was not not definitive. Um, Yeah. Pre DNA, also, yeah, it was pre DNA, but it did show evidence of some sort of force, forcible hit, or things like that. So here's some other things that led people to be suspicious. So right after Estelle and Joanne went over to help, they went to do the laundry, and John said he had already done a bunch of laundry on Monday, including quilts and rugs. 
to be clear, this would have been the day after Donna was last seen. So like the day immediately after Donna was missing, before he notified and reported her missing to the police, he was doing laundry, including and he, and he never did laundry. A man Not just clothes, but quilts and rugs. And well, right. I haven't said it. So I haven't said it outright up to this point, but this was wildly out of character for John to do the laundry. So he did not do the laundry. And wildly out of character. We're yes. all bashing it. Yeah. Yes. For instance, um, if we didn't already have a negative opinion on him, um, Donna actually had spent some time in the hospital after the birth of her second daughter because she had some hemorrhaging. Um, and after her return home, she had some physical limitations. So she could not physically do the laundry because she was still recovering from giving birth to their child. And she asked him if he could help with the laundry and he refused. He refused to help out. And I think her older sister ended up helping with the laundry because she couldn't do it. So definitely wildly out of character for wildly him to be helping. Yes. And therefore super suspicious. And later, some of the items John had admitted had admitted to washing were found to have remnants of suspicious stains on them. Okay. But since they had been washed and due to the technology of the time, they were unable to test for blood. So they weren't able to do that type of testing at the time. Also around the time... Men doing laundry, still highly skeptical. <laughs> Did you murder someone? <laughs> Are you burying your wife's DNA? <laughs> oh or are you just helping around the house because you're a kind person? We don't know. Uh, Uncle Bob does laundry. Sean <laughs> does laundry too. Sean does laundry. I think Sean was a little concerned when I started telling him details of this case because he's like, you gotta be careful. You tell my family that I never help out with anything. If anything were to happen to you, I'm like gonna be really in trouble. <laughs> but we all know Sean cannot stand the sight of blood. So we're no, good. he can't. I think <laughs> he almost passed out when I saw my when needed. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sporadically, yeah. Yes. This still um, seems like a sketchy case though for yeah. this dude, for this John. For yeah. Sure. So around, also around the time of Donna's disappearance, a white bloodstained bed sheet was found along the side of a road a few miles from their home. And blood typing of the blood on this sheet confirmed that the blood type was a match to Donna May. However, just like the blood in the garage, this was nowhere near definitive enough to prove that the blood was in fact Donna's. I believe she had a more common blood type. So just typing it to hers really only narrowed it to like 30% of the population. So without mm -hmm. DNA testing, it really didn't do much in terms of making a case. A point of interest, however, related to this was that when Estelle went to wash the bedding for the first time um, at Donna's house after Donna's disappearance, she noted that only one side of the bed was rumpled. The reason why this was odd is because she knew that Donna always washed the bedding on Thursday or Friday, and Donna hadn't gone missing until Sunday. So the bed should have been rumpled on both sides of the bed, given the timing of it being after when Donna would have last done the laundry. So it kind of makes you wonder, like, did something happen in the bed? Like, is that why it was bloody? And then maybe John changed the bedding and that's why it was only rumpled on one side. I will it's, say people are very routine <clears throat> and that says a lot. Yeah. For sure. That someone can call that out. Mm -hmm. So 
while she was changing the bedding, it also gave her the opportunity to test out another suspicion that she had. And so she was suspicious that John could hear a car turning around in the gravel lot as he claimed on the night that Donna disappeared because their bedroom was at like the back of the house. And this lot was across the street from their house. So it was like as far away as you could be. So he, she, she questioned whether or not he would even be able to hear that. Um, and so she stayed in the room and Joanne was there, Donna's older sister. And so Do Joanne let her know when there was a car turning around in the lot and Estelle tried to see if she could hear it and she didn't hear anything. So that mm -hmm. brings into question John's story of hearing the car turning around in the lot. Um, another potentially odd thing that John, uh, uh, that John had been sure to mention during his story of Donna Mae leaving was that he knew she was planning on coming back because she had taken the spike they used to lock the garage door with. So there's like a, they, they called it like a hasp. So it's basically like when you close it and you latch it, you have to like stick a pin in it. Oh yeah, sure. Close. So that was missing at the time that Donna went missing. So there's not a lot of detail on what this spike looked like, but I certainly wonder if it's possible, especially with the blood being found and evidence of an impact in the garage, if maybe he, he stabbed her with it. Maybe he oh. hit her with it. And that is yeah. why. Um, that too, um, I guess either way, whether she took it with her or if it was a potential murder weapon, Either way, it disappeared at the same time as she did. And then also, as the saying goes, out of the mouths of babes, John and Donna's daughters also made some concerning statements. So during their time with the children, Joanne noted a few troubling statements from her nieces. Um, Jody uh, had said she didn't want to be a nurse anymore. So Jody was a seven-year-old um, because when people fight, they get blood all over their face. And she didn't like that. Yikes. Oh my God. Oh. Um, Jackie, who is the four-year-old, made a comment. She said that mama had gotten lost and couldn't find her way home, that some bad man had hurt or killed her mama. Eek. Um, and then there was a time when Joanne was driving uh, her niece over to her parents' house um, to visit. And she said, driving down Rawson Avenue past Highway 36, Jackie had just made a comment you know how kids kind of blurt out randomly when you're driving she said yep. that daddy had been driving slow on that road that he had to go slow so the police didn't stop him oh I... um a neighbor with whom john had an agreement with to watch the girls when he had no other help lined up also noted some troubling things that jackie who again was the four-year-old said um, this included mommy is gone and we'll never see her again. Mommy might be dead. Um, and apparently she also told her about a trip that she had taken with her father up north to look for mommy and said she saw she saw a lot of blood up north. Yikes. Um, Daddy done it, man. Yeah. How, During do the how do we pin it on him? Good question. So during the time that Donna's mother spent at the barrel house helping with her granddaughters, she asked the youngest Jackie about the events of Sunday. So this is like closer to right after it happened. I think she was just trying to get a better feel for what could have possibly happened to um, her daughter like disappearing. 
So she asks what color roses Donna had bought at Stein's, to which Jackie said mama didn't go to Stein's. She was sick. Um, so Estelle asked if they had gone to McDonald's for hamburgers, and Jackie said no, mama was sick. Um, and so a little bit more context around this, this was sick. Um, Jody had the chicken pox. So another reason why Donna would not leave her children. She would not leave when her daughter was sick. Um, and this might be also why Donna herself wasn't feeling well. She could have gotten sick from, from Jody. According to Jackie, she didn't, they didn't do anything on Sunday. They didn't go out anywhere. They didn't go out to dinner. Uh, Mama kissed them goodnight, gave them baths, put them to bed, um, and that was it. So, and during that conversation with Jackie, Estelle asked if she and her sister would want to come and visit by them after school was out. And Jackie had made a comment that um, her dad, John, said they couldn't go over by their grandparents anymore. Oh. So that's troubling. Red, so, flag. red flags, red flags. Yeah. So essentially, Jackie kind of disputed John's entire story about what Donna had done leading up to her disappearance on Sunday. But why would you make up a story about going to Steins for roses? Why would you make up the story about going to McDonald's? A little bit about Steins, perhaps. So Donna's older sister, Joanne, noted that when they first arrived at the house, John made a point to go over all the work he had done in the yard making quite a fuss over the rose bushes he had planted. A helpful neighbor even noted he would not allow her to work in that area of the garden. However, so now you're wondering like, oh man, did he bury her body in the rose bushes? So the police did later investigate that area of the yard where the roses were planted, um, but Donna Mae was not found. So that line of suspicion. Oh, dead end, you know, but still. Yeah. 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 Other statements and leads. So this case did end up going cold. Um, an anonymous tip came in in 1985 from a woman who said that she had been somewhere when she passed a group of people talking about a woman who had disappeared from Muskego, Wisconsin. The group stated that John was capable of doing this and that John had buried her body under some pillars used for construction along Silver Spring Road for a highway or overpass. Mm -hmm. He had buried the body and poured cement over it. The tipster also said they heard he had taken some dirt from his flower bed and used it to bury his wife. When investigators looked into this tip, they found that there were two bridges on Silver Spring Drive, not road, and that they had been built in 1964 and no repairs had been made in 1979. There was, however, worked on a bridge just two blocks south of Silver Spring Drive. When the contractor was questioned, he admitted that it would have been possible for a body to be buried prior to the construction process. John's employer was contacted and said they only installed acoustical ceilings, so he must have been involved in some form of construction, um, that they didn't do road work. Uh, making investigators believe that this could have been a false lead. It could have been like a made-up story. Maybe somebody heard the rumors and kind of made some things up. However, when investigators tracked down a woman who used to be a bartender at a bar John frequented in the late 70s, around the time that Donna Mae went missing, she added some possible corroboration to the tip. 
She once overheard John say that if anyone wanted to get rid of a body, they could bury it in a concrete pillar and no one would ever know it was there. I'm going to make a random statement like that at the bar sometime, just so that somebody can try to hold it against me 20 years from now. It should also be noted that he stopped, after Donna went missing, he stopped going to that bar altogether. Oh! oh shocking. Red flag. So um, John's whole attitude around his wife's disappearance was apathetic. He just seemed to write it off. He basically is like, she's never coming back. I'm moving on with my life. He didn't really talk about her, didn't bring her up. He just kind of moved on. He even filed for divorce just three months after her disappearance. Dick! I would say based on the reactions, yeah, and I would say that based on the reactions through all this, you're wondering like, why wasn't he arrested? Why wasn't he charged? But there was no concrete evidence at the time. It was all concrete in a pillar. I know, no pun pun intended. This case- Concrete pillar evidence? Yeah, so sorry. I, no pun intended, Um, but there's no concrete evidence against him. It was all circumstantial at best. Um, After the required waiting period, Donna was declared dead in 1986, but she has never been found and her case went cold. Wow. Other theories would that you have to kind of keep in mind or consider is that she left of her own free will. Um, However, she lived for her children. Even John agreed she would be in touch with those girls if she could. She would not have left without them. Jody was sick with the chicken pox at the time. So, I mean, she's oh, definitely not going to leave the sick kid. Yeah. She had plans with her mom to visit for Mother's Day the following weekend. Her marriage had robbed her of her confidence. So the question would be, would she have even had the confidence to leave him? And I mean, as a mom, I can't imagine leaving without those kids. I feel like if you're going to make a run for it, you'd pack up those babies. Your kids. You take she, she would yeah. know that he was not going to take care um, of them. Yeah. And furthermore, no trace has ever been found since her disappearance to, to suggest that Donna May was alive and well. So, I mean, they can trace your, I just, like, your social security number. There's been nothing yeah. to indicate that she is still alive. I agree. From the murder mysteries I've seen, if a mother leaves her kids, they're either an illegitimate mother that never wanted kids, or they're a mother that it's a red flag. And when they left them, it's like, what happened to her? Right. And this is that case. This is that situation. And even if she's leaving him and the children, she's not going to never talk to her own family again. Yeah. Right. And right. she would say yeah. to her family, go Dead. get my kids. I'm or her friend out. Betty, who was willing to help. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, right. she was yeah. for sure. Yeah. It's a definitely case of that. Um, so the other theory would be that she met trouble after leaving the house on her own. Um, so, you know, the theory that after the argument, she left to cool off and ran into some sort of danger, but the police have never found any evidence to support that theory. That would be pretty spectacularly bad luck. Yeah. And she would have had to walk because her car was there. Muskego is like a safe town i mean yeah. when i say it's yeah. safe i would say current statistics it has a rating of 90 meaning that it is safer than 90 percent of all u.s cities like and this was 40 years ago where it was even less you know of a population it was a safe town 
Okay, so majority of the information I got for this case, um, so I was originally thinking that this wouldn't be as much information for this, but it was a lot meatier than I was anticipating because I actually came across a three-part series of episodes by The Vanished podcast that aired in May of 2018. The youngest daughter, Jackie, actually reached out to the host of that podcast to see if they would do an episode on her mom because at that time her mom the case was still cold and her mom was still missing. So like I said, at that time, the case had been, at the time that the podcast actually aired those three episodes, the case had been unsolved for 39 years. But it so wouldn't sad. stay so, so sad for those kids. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I feel like in these cases, I don't know if there's ever anything as a happy ending. Um but not having answers, I think is just terrible. But fortunately, and unfortunately, the case wouldn't remain cold and it wouldn't remain unsolved. So they were, don't get, don't get too cheery yet, but. <laughs> um, so since the airing of the episodes on Donna May on the Vanish podcast, there were some new developments in the case, um, and in particularly driven by the current detective assigned to the case. So John Barrel actually listened to the podcast, um, and that opened the door for the police to meet and talk with him further, which is something that he had avoided all the years at the direction of his attorney. So, so you said john the ex-husband yep yep to the podcast yes and they well they had re he knew it was coming out because they had actually reached out to him and there are even some clips of him talking that you can hear so they they went into a lot of detail they talked to the detective they they interviewed the daughters they interviewed the older sister they have um they were able to read the statements made by the parents. They read some of the um, notations and correspondence from Betty. They had talked to John. So like they have like so much. So this was like a wealth of information. Um, this podcast has a lot of like single episode stories, but this one, they did three full episodes they actually ended up doing a fourth with like the follow-up after the um, additional developments. But because it was almost because of this podcast that they were able to actually close this case. So um, one of the things that had developed as a result of this podcast was John had listened to the podcast and it kind of opened the door for the current detective assigned to the case to reach out to him and talk with him further about it. Um, and this is something that he had avoided. And even with the podcast, he avoided talking to them and sharing too much information. And he kept falling back on, you know, my attorneys don't advise against it. Or like I've been advised by my attorneys not to do it. Um, and it's something where they know I'm like, guilty. So I'm supposed right, to keep my mouth and, shut. And they said like, well, your attorneys told you that 40 years ago, like, why wouldn't you do it now? And the reason why the detective would justify reaching out to him is like, you were the one that filed the missing persons report. You were the initial complainant on the case. Why wouldn't you want to talk to us, um, in regards to this? Like, don't you want to know what happened to her? Um, the other piece of it, and we talked about the blood found in the garage, and at the time in 1979, 
all they were really able to do was to determine that there was some sort of force that occurred, that the blood type matched hers, but again, that only narrowed it to about 30% of the population and didn't make it definitive that it was Donna's. Um, and DNA technology at the time didn't exist. Um, but they were able to take that test or the sample that they had collected at the time and they worked with the family to create a DNA profile for Donna Mae to test against it, to do a comparison. Now, storage of that sample that they collected back in 1979 wasn't great because they didn't even know about DNA at the time. So they weren't really planning for it, even just testing it. You know, that's one of those things where they're going to do it just to see what they get, but they're not going to necessarily get their hopes up too high because you don't know how much that sample is degraded. However, while not able to technically say it was definitively her blood, they you were do mitochondrial DNA testing now, right? Well, they they actually did something really cool to create her DNA profile, and I'll, I'll tell you that. But they did the test, they had a DNA profile, and they were able to compare it against the blood sample taken in 1979. And while they can't say it's definitively hers, they can say that the chances of it being her blood is one in 12 billion. So I think that's pretty good, right? Pretty close. So to create the DNA profile, they did work with um, the daughters and they also had a DNA sample from the husband so that they could exclude his DNA from, from theirs to create a DNA profile. So that was one way that they went about creating the DNA profile, but they actually found they were able to create a better DNA profile for her by getting a baby book from her oldest daughter. And so specifically they had, um, like there were pictures in the baby book that were covered by like a cellophane sheet and underneath it, the pictures were adhered to the page with like lick stick corners. Oh. Oh. So we were able to get her DNA from the corners that she licked and stuck the pictures down when she created the the baby book for her daughter. Just in case everything, anything ever happens to me. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, like, it's just kind of amazing, you know, but yeah, so, um, so they were able to confirm that the blood in the garage was hers. They had talked to John some more and like, even just through him, he felt that he basically admitted that he felt that she was no longer alive and kind of even discluded the alternate theories. Like he, just in talking through him, um, he didn't confess by any means, but um, it certainly didn't make him look innocent either. Additionally, um, the DA was able to include evidence of John's abusive behavior in his first and third marriages in the case. So he was, he did marry again after Donna and was abusive in that marriage as well. And I believe both of those um, ex-wives testified against him in court. Good. So, and the simple passage of time. Um, so looking at like, you know, did she leave on her own? Did she come into foul play after she left on her own? The fact that no evidence has ever been found that she is alive and well somewhere, that no evidence has been found that she met with foul play after she left the home. Just the simple passage of time basically ruled out those possibilities. 
um, basically leaving you with the one where the only logical answer is that John is responsible for his wife's disappearance. So John Barrow was arrested on February in February of 2019 and charged with the murder of his wife. Oh, no yes. way. Yes. He was arrested from his home in Florida at the age of 79 and charged oh. with the murder of his wife. Snowburden. Snowburden. On Go cold case files. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Holy shit. So on what? June 26th of 2019, after just four hours of deliberation, a Waukesha County jury found John Barrow guilty of murdering his wife, Donna Mae Barrow. Oh, yeah. Waukesha County. Yeah, at 79 years old, he was sentenced to life in prison on August 30th, 2019. Wait, Yay. so do we know where her body is, though? So here's the thing that is why I would say don't cheer too much. And it's a little bit um, makes me personally heart sick. And why, again, why I would encourage people to listen to the other podcast, The Vanished, and like the full detail, because one thing I haven't really covered is just like the impact that this has had on his children and on her daughters. And it's just, it's sad. And like Jill, I mean, you guys were living in Muskego at the time and you were like a year older oh, than yeah. your daughter. So, I mean. Uh, oh yeah, I totally yeah. didn't even think about that. You guys oh, were living awful. in Muskego at the time. Yeah. And also women were so quiet back then yeah I, I, mean, I hate to say it women were so quiet and yeah and mm -hmm. we're more liberated now <laughs> your grandma was not quiet <laughs> <laughs> women in my family not so much but yeah we're not so quiet <laughs> yeah women were quieter this is so sad yeah. to hear, so one could say that justice was served um, however, so like I said, the original airing of the Vanish podcast, the first episodes were in 2018. So this was before he was arrested, before he was tried, and before he was convicted. And at that time, the host of that podcast asked the daughters, you know, what's more important to you after all this time and been 39 years? What's more important to you, justice or answers? Like, you know, you know, that he gets what's coming to him because of what he did or that you find out finally what happened to your mom. And they both said that answers were more important. I mean, after 39 years, yeah. he lived his life, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, um, you're not taking much yeah, away at this point, but I, yeah. 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 I agree with them. Yeah, and they probably didn't get them, did they? No, so yeah. while- they got justice. While they got justice, there is still no answer as to where their mother is. Um, so oh, to this day, find her. Oh. Yeah, to this day, Donna May has never been found. Um, at sentencing, one man, uh, the one man, so John Barrel, who can give them that answer, their father, uh, maintained his innocence, saying, I do not know what happened to her. I could say I killed her and put her in Lake Michigan but I didn't. Oh, that's so gross. What a that seems very specific in my opinion. Yeah. 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 Why would you say that? Because it also seems unlikely though, because a body in Lake Michigan, just based on the way that bodies are, I mean, those of us on here, most of us are crime junkies as it is. 
bodies will end up floating and come back to shore. Yes. Yeah. Not it's not going to take 40 years, but if it's buried, it's not going to come out of the dirt. It's in so, a I mean, the odds of it being in Lake Michigan, somewhere. I think it's are in a concrete piling somewhere where he did work. Yeah. Absolutely. And I wish that under a patio bring light to Something. someone that he worked with that would say, "Oh, it was really awkward that he was there that day." you know, yeah. at this hour. Yeah. Well, the child said that he was driving slow on that one road so he right. wouldn't get pulled over. Which so like Michigan. Rossin. What are you gonna do? Just I don't dig know. everywhere? Oh so, but there there is to this day there's no answer. But it is something that the Mosquito Police Department is committed to keeping the case open, at least at, like listed as a cold case, I should say because they, until they find her. So if you go onto the Muskego, cityofmuskego.org and you go to the police department and look at their cold case tab, there's two cases listed. There's this case and one other case of a missing person. So it's still posted because they, they're they not going to rest until they bring her home. Is the father still alive? He's, He's in, jail, in jail. jail. He's in jail, but he's still alive, yeah. Hopefully on his deathbed, he finally admits so his kids can have some peace. I think they said that, you know, they think that he's convinced himself over the years that yeah, so much time is that he's passed, innocent, that he's right. convinced himself that he yeah. didn't do it. But so one thing I did want to mention is that domestic abuse is at the heart of this case and it has some staggering statistics. So with people spending more time at home and restrictions, um, when we do go out, domestic violence related homicides are up 64%. Um, and nearly half of all female homicides are committed by a current or former partner. So um, for anybody listening to this episode, to this podcast, um, if you or someone you know is dealing with domestic violence, please contact the National Domestic Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE, which is 1-800-799-7233, or chat online with the, at www.thehotline.org. If you guys know of anybody that you're concerned about, make sure that they have that information as well. That was all terrible stuff, right? Um, First so, episode, yay! <laughs> well, yeah. I did. I did want to say that um, I, while we are covering some pretty terrible and sad things, I do want to make sure we end each episode on a Wisco high note to remind us all that the good is still out there, even though there is there is bad. So. Um, the high note for today is also actually the Muskego Police Department. There, there's a couple of things with the police department. One is that they are still committed to bringing Donna May home. They have been champions in this case and finding and getting answers. Even with it being 40 years old, they didn't treat it any differently than they would any other case. They kept with it. Um, at the time that the case was going on, there were even detectives that weren't assigned to the case were spending their spare time searching for her, looking anywhere that they possibly could to see if she was, if she was there, that they could find her body. They checked in on the girls at school. They made sure that they talked to the teachers 
and the principals knowing that there was abuse at home. Um, they basically said, if there's any signs whatsoever that these girls are being abused, you let us know right away. So they were very- Everyone did their due diligence. Yes, they were watching out for them. Yeah. It can't come out until- yep. And I'm, I hear so much negative about the police these days in the news. And so just having something positive about them, I feel like in this case- Diligently really working on cases like the one we just discussed all day today. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that is what I had for today's episode. That's the first case. So for anybody who stuck it out with us, thank you for tuning into the podcast. Until next time, eat, drink, and be wary. cheese and murder would like to thank the references that make this podcast possible a full list of references can be found on our website at beer cheese and murder podcast.com mm-hmm.